So welcome to our Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim from Essence VC, and we have a lovely partner from Cowboy Ventures, Robbie. We're very excited to have Omri Gazit from Acerto. It's the fastest path to enterprise-grade authorization. So welcome, Omri. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with the very beginning. Where does this idea come from? How do you decide to actually start a company around this? So I guess it goes back to the time that my co-founder and I spent at Microsoft. Uh, this was like a long time ago, probably a good 15 years ago. And both of us were in kind of like the world of developers. You know, so we were working on things like .NET and SQL Server and Transaction Server and all the stuff that helped developers build applications on our platform. And, you know, the cloud was super, super new at the time. I think this was 2006, 2007. And it was pretty clear that kind of like developer platforms were going to move to the cloud even before we had these words. And we were working on, uh, we had this thing called Active Directory at the time, which was basically, as my boss, Bob Muglia used to say, it was like the linchpin workload for the Windows Server franchise. What does that mean? It means that basically all of these, you know, kind of enterprise apps like the Oracles and the SAPs and, you know, all that stuff that ran on Windows, like had to know who was logged in and what they could do. And, you know, so that that was Active Directory. And so... You know, in that world, there was Active Directory, which had like 90% market share, and there was like LDAP on Linux systems, which had the rest. And so life was simple when you were an enterprise app. You basically talked to the directory and it told you who was logged in and what they could do, you know, through basically this notion of groups. And when software started moving to the SaaS model and to the cloud, you had no operating system to ask who was logged in and what they could do. And so all of these apps like Salesforce and Workday and ServiceNow and all these apps that were getting built had to go reinvent login and they had to go reinvent their permission systems. And so with Active Directory, like Bob basically said, hey, what's the Active Directory for the age of SaaS and cloud? And so we set out to build what eventually became Azure Active Directory. And the irony is the first thing that we ended up building, I was the GM for the team and, you know, Gert was like the chief architect of kind of these new things. And the first thing that we actually built was this access control service. And quickly we realized that, no, without identity, you couldn't even get to access. So we set out to do basically authentication and login and federated identity and all those things. And we worked on things like OpenID Connect and SAML and OAuth 2 and JWT. And 15 years later, we have like what I call the interoperable identity fabric. Like no one has to go build login if you don't want to, right? Like you have companies like Okta and Auth0 and OneLogin and Ping ID and all these you know, there's probably $50 billion, at least, of market value that's been created over the last 15 years solving that problem. So, you know, the identity, you know, in the age of SaaS and cloud. And when Gert and I kind of looked probably mid-2020, like we both knew we wanted to do another startup and this was going to be my third one. And we were looking at what was hard to do at the kind of intersection of developer and enterprise. We immediately kind of went back to this, you know, identity and access world. And we noticed that, you know, like we, we kind of all succeeded as an industry with identity, but access hadn't moved forward at all. And the more we dug into it, the more we realized, oh, my God, this is like totally underserved. Started talking to, you know, CTOs and VPs of engineering. And they all said, yeah, this is kind of like a pain in our butt. Like this is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. We build it and then we build it again and then we build it again and we keep on getting customer requirements and it's like every year we have to kind of go invest more time and effort into this. 
And like none of our developers like to do this. Like no developer wakes up in the morning and says, I want to work on our back. <laughs> and so, you know, we felt like there was kind of pain on that side. And then we started talking to like the other side, which were like the buyers. And the IT folks were basically saying, every one of these apps has a different permission and RBAC model. And it's all like, we have to live in hundreds of consoles and like misconfigurations are rampant and it's hard to onboard and offboard people. And so they had a ton of pain too. And then the compliance teams were like, this is like the wild west. It's like, we have no idea who's authorized to do what. And so compliance is really hard. So we found a problem with a lot of pain around a lot of different you know, seats around the table. And so we felt like that was a great place to go invest the next 10 years. Awesome. And to your point, like this is a very big problem. It's something that you can spend a lot of time on, but it also, from the way you describe it and from my understanding of it, it's a very hard problem to start on because if you're going to a company and they already have access controls that are tied into specific applications, then moving them to standardize on something totally new is tricky. So how did you kind of figure out where to start? Like the kind of type of company or like type of functionality or type of distribution, and this might get into open source a bit, but like, where do you start on a problem like this? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, um, you know, it's, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg here where a lot of people that we talked to that said, where were you six months when we were working on this, right? So we feel like not unlike how, you know, let's say Auth0 started, where, you know, first there had to be a little bit of an awareness that there's a buy solution that exists. Auth0 ended up doing it without open source, but, you know, they built a product that kind of scratched an itch or solved a, a problem that people had. They had to kind of go build over time this momentum around their solution because back then, you know, I think companies like Twilio and SendGrid and Stripe were still really young. And this notion that developers are going to go outsource this really critical thing to a cloud service was, you know, still kind of in its infancy. These days, kind of the nice thing is you don't ever have to have that, you know, argument anymore. Like people that say, hey, authorization is a service. What's that all about? Basically, all you have to do is ask them about certain examples. You know, do you use LaunchDarkly? Do you use, you know, Auth0? Do you use Stripe? And they go, yeah, of course. So you go, well, why wouldn't you do that for authorization? And we basically picked, you could say, you know, this is either brilliant or not, but like we picked SaaS companies as our initial target market. We know that enterprises have this problem as well, but we think that kind of like earlier stage SaaS companies tend to move a little faster and tend to see kind of like that build versus buy trade-off a little bit more earlier on. And the customers that we do have, they all come back with three things that they say really kind of move the needle for them. One is TCO, like they basically have a far lower cost overall to, you know, kind of like get it from us versus to build it themselves and maintain it, you know, time to market. Like they basically say, well, to build something like what you have takes a long time. Like, you know, two or three of them, my engineers have to get burned for like a couple of quarters. And this is time that I could be spending like their time on much more relevant things to my core customer, my core problem. And then the third thing is really security. A lot of folks basically are struggling to kind of build the right security model. And knowing that, you know, kind of we live this every day, all day really helps them kind of feel like we're in good trusted hands. And so all those things I think matter. And at the same time, you have to find people at the time that they feel like authorization is at the top of their list, the top of the problems to solve. And so outbound's a little hard, right? Because you have to catch people at the right time. 
inbound, you know, usually works better because people find you when it's time to find you, but you kind of have to go build awareness and that's a long-term game. And so we feel like there's some combination of kind of meeting the right people, you know, kind of having the right design partners early. And some of that is just getting connected to the right people. And, and some of this, frankly, luck. But over time, we think that as we build, you know, and it's not like only us in this market, there are a few other people that are trying this too. I think we're going to go build some awareness that solutions out there do exist to this problem. And so I think that's going to float the boat of, of more than, you know, just Certo. I think that we're going to start seeing kind of like this subcategory of I am of identity and access that grows around modern authorization. And I think your tagline, right, which is enterprise grade, and also you just mentioned modern authorization. But what is enterprise grade? What is modern? I guess this authorization is not a new problem, as you mentioned. And I think when we're looking back into what Auth0 did, it made implementation a whole lot more easier, but it really offloaded a lot of the complexity. And I guess because of all the newer frameworks, newer rules, and all the attacks, it sort of just makes it a whole lot more easier for someone to just manage all of that. I can just one integration around done. Is that very similar when it comes to permissioning? Or is it actually just more than that? When we actually talk about modern enterprise screen? Yeah. So first, you know, kind of we'll draw a line between authentication and authorization. And, you know, like Tim, you know this really well. Uh, and it's surprising how many people, you know, kind of don't quite understand the differences. Authentication is, you know, you're proving who you are to a system, you know, and you could do that for through user ID and a password or through a single sign-on system or, or password lists or two-factor biometrics. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And that's a whole problem in and of itself. And that's what Auth0 does really well. And that's what Auth does really well and, and, and all those folks. But, you know, authorization is really downstream from that. Like once users prove that they are who they say they are, what can they do in the context of your application? And so it's a different problem. And it's kind of one of those things that's like surprisingly complicated as you kind of go down the rabbit hole. So the very first stage of the journey typically is like, hey, you know, file new company. Of course I need login. I'm going to use something like Auth0 or whatever. Why would I build that on my own? And, you know, authorization, what's that? Oh yeah, I have a bit in my user database, admin or not, like it's a true or false. And, you know, if the user comes in and they happen to have that admin bit set, then they're an admin and everybody else is a user. Like, what's so hard about that? And as you start kind of like evolving your application and you have customers that require more and more things, especially like large, sophisticated enterprise customers, you get like basically just, you get slammed with a big Excel spreadsheet with all the enterprise types of requirements. And so they say, oh yeah, like, no, you need more roles and you need more permissions and you need more discrete permissions and you need you know, we need to be able to have fine-grained access on every noun that you have and every verb that, you know, operates on every noun. And uh, we need custom roles because your admin doesn't really mean anything to us. Like we have our own admin and we need to be able to map our groups from Active Directory or from Okta into your roles and that has to be automated. And by the way, every authorization decision that your application makes has to be part of an audit trail that we can actually get a hold of pour into our systems because we want to maintain our, you know, our compliance to, you know, all of the standards that we have to comply with. And so this is just a massive amount of work, right? And so like misleadingly easy at the very beginning and very quickly realize you're on a treadmill and you're constantly having to evolve this stuff. And, you know, why be in the business of doing that, right? 
Awesome. So since this is the open source startup podcast, we love digging into the open source part of company strategies. And so would love to talk a bit about what a sort of strategy is. And it does seem like it's quite unique working with open policy agent. And yeah, we'd just love to hear about like what your initial thinking was on it and what the strategy is today. Yeah. So a little bit of history, Kurt and I both came, my co-founder and I both came from Microsoft. And one of the things that we were really frustrated about Microsoft, especially kind of you know, between 2005 and 2010 or 11, when, you know, we kind of left, I think we left a, a year after I did, was that we just didn't get it. You know, we didn't get like kind of the fact that this was like really a tidal wave and it was a different way of building applications, a way that kind of like helped reduce risk as opposed to increase risk. So when I left Microsoft, you know, I got pretty deep into the open source world and eventually found myself working on things like OpenStack and Cloud Foundry. I remember Tim was on the Cloud Foundry project as well and kind of discovered not just open source, but also kind of multi-vendor open source ecosystems. And OpenStack, say what you will about its success now, it was kind of a really early example of a project or a set of projects that a bunch of vendors kind of like participating together in it and really kind of building something new. Cloud Foundry was a different example. Kubernetes obviously, you know, kind of was, is one that we all know that is here to stay. And we felt like that was a great model for building infrastructure. Basically, if you're building an engine, you want to build it with others. You know, you want to have a steady hand that designs it and makes sure, ensures that the the quality stays high. But overall, that helps reduce your risk as a customer, because if you actually take advantage of that, build on top of it, you know that there's going to be a wider community that's going to be available. And you know that you're going to have multiple vendors that you can switch from. So that was always kind of an important part of any developer play that we thought we would want to do. And at the same time, so when we first started looking at the problem, we said, okay, so do we need to build another engine? Do we need to invent another language? And it's like, you know, the Microsoft heritage always answered that those questions. Yes, of course. What do you mean? But the open source heritage kind of takes a hard look at it and says, well, you know, we have an open source engine called OPA. It wasn't graduated yet, but it seems to fit our purposes. And so we're going to, rather than invent our own, we're going to join that ecosystem. And there's a language and the language is, it's honestly not easy to get into. It's a kind of a logic language. It's a data log derivative. We can actually make that work as well. And so rather than invent all those things, we're going to actually try to solve the hard problem, which is how do you build API and application authorization on top of those assets? And, you know, there are some really hard problems around getting a bunch of data to that engine. There are some real distributed systems problems. And so we knew that we wanted to use that open source asset. And when we thought about our own open source strategy, we felt like the right thing to do was what we call open edge. So basically everybody knows what open core is. You know, you basically have kind of a core asset that's open source, and then you kind of build a commercial product around it, and maybe you offer that in a hosted version. For things that are kind of distributed systems, what we mean by open edge is everything that runs kind of at the edge, you know, close to your application is open source. So our edge authorizer, you know, wants to be open source. And then our control plane is going to be proprietary, and we're going to operate that. We'll have customers that will want to operate their own control plane, and that's fine. But that we think is a good, you know, like that's basically strikes the, the pragmatic balance. And this is not something that I originated. Like 
I have to give credit to Lou Keniz, who is the founder of Puppet. And the interesting thing about that company was when they first started, everything was open source. And he always thought about it as a tactic, right? He felt like he wanted to get a lot of developers to and DevOps people, sysadmins, as, as he would say, to go use that thing. And so he made it open source and they basically made everything open source. And if he had to do it over again, he would say the Puppet server, all those bits, he would have actually made closed source. And the Puppet agent would be the the open source piece. So as a user, I can go install that on my workstation and just type puppet apply and all of that stuff is open source. But if I want to, you know, kind of like control thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of nodes, you really need what was called a puppet master at the time, you know, the puppet server piece. And that, you know, there was really no reason for that to be open source. And so he would have done it differently. And I took that lesson from him. Yeah, that's a really interesting lesson because we see many different companies, even within the permissioning space, are actually doing very different strategies. And there's there's always different trade-offs. Obviously, there's a lot more complexity when you actually open source everything eventually. Uh, but there's probably some appeal to do it as well. So maybe talk more, because I think what you actually open source was quite unique. This open source, open policy registry, right? The, the toolings around actually packaging policies. And when you look at the documentation of CERTL, it seems to suggest you really have a CERTL policy and, and different CLI and tools. And so what is the sort of thinking process behind trying to have create independent sort of almost like projects or ecosystems here? Do you feel like policy itself is like a reusable independent community that's not always just tied to a CERTL or... What's, what's the process of it there? Yeah. I think there I would, you know, dip my hat to the CoreOS folks. And they had kind of a cool philosophy, I thought. They basically kind of borrowed what they thought of as the Unix, you know, or Linux philosophy, which was a bunch of tools that kind of have independent value, but you collect them together, you know, to do something kind of important and cool and unique. And, you know, so they have etcd and you know, they had a few other components that they built and had kind of independent value. And so we think that the policy CLI, for example, that we created is a really important ecosystem tool. And we built it in a totally clean room, open source way. It's got its own GitHub org. It's uh, completely you know, open source. And people use it not just for scenarios that have to do with the CERTO, which you know, is really all about API and application authorization. They use it for their infrastructure policies as well. You, know, you could use it with ConfTest. You could use it with Gatekeeper. Anything that is an OPA policy, you can basically build into an OCI image. So here's an example of where we saw an opportunity to kind of bring together some ecosystems in open source that just weren't connected. So you have, you know, like OPA, basically it's kind of native packaging format is just a tarball. And there's all sorts of things you can't do with a tarball. Like you can, but they're kind of really awkward like signing tarballs and tagging them and, you know, versioning them and all the things that we're used to doing with container images. We said, why don't we create a standard for taking these policies and instead of building them into tarballs, build them into OCI images and be able to sign them with Cosign, you know, part of the SigStore project. So, you know, there are all these independent open source projects and you can bring them together and bring them to bear on this problem. And so that's a component that we think is, you know, just kind of like a great thing for the industry to have. And we use it as well. So 
there's tooling that we think has general applicability and those are, you know, they want to be open source. And then we have our own container image for the authorizer and that wants to be open source too. And then we have our control plan. We think that's where we add value for organizations that want something to basically coordinate or manage the lifecycle of their policies, connect all their identity providers, bring all that data to the edge and bring decision logs from the edge back to the control plane. All those problems are things that we think justify commercial value. So one of the hardest things about creating a new category in a sense, because this is kind of a new category of tooling, and one of the hardest things is just getting early education and momentum and getting people to understand like, hey, this is something that you should think about differently and you should use and also hopefully then pay for separately. And I noticed that you did a lot of really good content early on and still good content, but the earliest stuff was very much about market education and like, what is this as a capability? What did you learn that you think other founders could really learn from about educating the market early on and like what works versus what doesn't work? Yeah, I think that, like you said, it's really important to be able to kind of take a point of view and not be afraid to be controversial. So one piece that I wrote, I remember early on was um, OAuth 2 scopes are not permissions. And that's still kind of a keystone piece of content because I was kind of picking a fight with this, this practice that we thought was insecure, which was you basically treat your authentication provider as if it was an authorization system. And specifically the bad practice that we were trying to call out is basically having a whole bunch of scopes that would be baked into an access token by the authentication provider. And we basically outlined four reasons why this was kind of like not a good solution and definitely not something that scales. And interestingly enough, our first customer came out of that. They basically, the head of technology over there, read the new stack article that I published and said, we have this problem. <laughs> I mean, like everything you wrote is exactly what we're experiencing right now. We initially started with all these scopes and we baked them in the token. And now there's like 120 of them and the token's too big. And, you know, as soon as they're baked into the token, now that all that stuff is stale and it like basically the token can have wrong information in it unless I invalidate it, which is too hard to do. And I've totally come to the conclusion, just like you said, that you need to check authorization you know, permissions right when you try to access a protected resource. And so it was just a great example of how content and you, know, you need to figure out how to get distribution on that content. And that's a hard problem in and of itself. But you know, like basically staking out a position, especially if you're kind of pushing against the conventional wisdom is really helpful. So I'm looking at the, the launch on Hacker News and different places. I think definitely, given this is such a new category, right? You know, a lot of people actually are very interested at this. Well, everybody has to implement this problem. Everybody has a version of this. Not everybody, or pretty much not everyone is happy about it because it's really hard, it's, it's brutal, as you mentioned. But lots and lots of debate, what's the right way to do it? <laughs> I don't think there's anybody has fully convergent on one path. And you look at all the spaces of people building this space, plus people that are engaging in your comments, they're all proposing different ways to do it, different syntaxes. And I think there's a level of trying to even figure out how to navigate, not just is this a problem, but how to solve that problem is going to be actually a very interesting problem. How 
what is the approach you've taken so far? Because you decided on an approach here, the rationale and also like how do you communicate? Hey, this is actually the best approach. Is there any particular comparisons or things like that to help sort of understand the thought process and the trade-offs of the design choices? Or yeah, so we we wrote an early piece, you know, around basically the five principles of authorization. And surprisingly, if you type principles of authorization into Google, somehow <laughs> Google, you know, bot has decided that our post was worthy enough to, to elevate, you know, which was kind of nice. But we basically kind of thought through what things are really important. So, you know, we think that secure by default is really important. That's a principle that, you know, kind of is not really controversial, but you want to go build that into a system. You want to make sure that we felt like it was really important to do authorization right as close as possible to the request to kind of like get a protected resource. So you don't really want to rely on information that could be very, very stale. So, you know, that's one of the architectural choices that we made was to go with a system where the authorizer is deployed right next to your application and you have a control plane that manages, mediates, you know, between all the external data that you want and, you know, this authorization system. We thought that policy as code is a really important concept. And so we wanted to, you know, build that into our system. And that's the place where our thinking has evolved, honestly. So, you know, to take you into like one level of detail, you know, into it, like I would say that there's an interesting debate in the industry between what I would call the policy as code camp and the policy as data camp. Policy as code basically is, hey, you know, like you can go build general purpose rules and you have an engine, a logic engine that evaluates those rules and tells you whether this user has, you know, permission to perform this operation on this resource. And I almost kind of like, I think of it as a, an architectural style in the same way that SOAP and REST were two different architectural styles, right? And we know that REST ended up being, you know, kind of like the much more popular architectural style. But SOAP took the approach of, well, everything should be possible. Like you should be able to build your own protocols, your own contracts. Whereas REST said, no, there's like one that really matters called REST. You know, like it looks like CRUD. And, you know, you basically shoehorn your problem into that. That would be what I would call the policy as data camp. And they would say that most problems fit within this relationship model like what's called a relationship-based access control, where you have a you know, subject and an action or a predicate and an object. So you have rules like Robbie is the host of this podcast and Tim is also the host of this podcast and Omri is a guest on this podcast. And so basically these rules relate subjects, which are people or groups with objects, which are you know, essentially types. And you can basically build a graph that way. And back in the old days of the internet, we used to call this RDF and, you know, we used to have these triple stores. So these are not like new ideas, but they've been basically been revived by this paper that Google published called Zanzibar, which is the paper that they wrote on how they built the permissioning system for Google Docs. Really interesting paper. And so we actually think that, you know, we're pragmatists. Like we, we don't like engage in religious debates. It's not like policy as code is the best or policy as data is the best. It actually turns out that if you combine these ideas together, you actually have a much more interesting and flexible system. So, you know, our directory is built around this, you know, triple store Zandabar model where you can basically define a set of object types and define a set of subjects and extend them and create relationships and hang permissions off of those relationships. 
But you can actually go build attribute-based access control rules in your OPA policies. And so bringing these concepts together, we think, is the most flexible type of system you can build. And that's why we kind of orient towards companies that want to get to enterprise grade, right? So, you know, if you want like the simplest possible system, you basically, you know, you could go with something else, but you'll run out of room really quickly. And we try to position ourselves as, you know, simple RBAC in under a day, but this will take you all the way to the most sophisticated enterprise requirements. And that we think is the value proposition that people really want. They want a system that will grow with them where they can start simple, but you know, they can basically express everything that they could possibly want to express uh, over time. Yeah. I really like how you talked about like, we're not for everybody in a sense and no good product, especially at this stage should be for everybody because you kind of need to figure out who's going to be really passionate about our approach. What are kind of the trade-offs then for if our approach is one that it's going to scale with you and it's highly flexible, then like how do folks get trained on it and how to like figure out how to operate where you have moving pieces, like people need different permissions and they have to learn how to use our system in order to operate effectively. Was that a big part of learning as far as just onboarding folks onto Asserto's approach? Or did you look for folks who are already familiar with Zanzibar, already kind of bought into it? So you kind of had like a self-selecting group that you were selling to. Yeah. So we, you know, honestly, the first few customers were less obsessed with technology. They knew about OPA and they felt like being built, you know, on top of the OPA ecosystem was a plus because again, it was risk mitigation for them, but ultimately they had a problem to solve and their problem, they could express it in their own domain specific terms. And if we came in and said, well, this is how we would build that. And in fact, we built our own, you know, authorization system for Asserto using Asserto. And so you are a multi-tenant system and we're a multi-tenant system. And this is how we modeled tenants and the relationship between users and tenants. And they said, we recognize that, like, that's what we want to do. So we said, great, like we have a pattern now and we can actually teach other people how to do this pattern. So, you know, I would say that most of the folks that we've been working with tend to be pragmatists and tend to have a problem and love working with people who will kind of spend a little bit of time with them, you know, kind of making sure that they're successful with it. And at the same time, that obviously that doesn't scale, right? So you can do that at the very beginning, but you kind of have to go extract these patterns out and you have to create, you know, either de facto or maybe even de jure standards around them. Like, I don't think that you would have companies like Okta or OpZero today if we didn't have OAuth 2. Like, that was just such an unlock because you now had a protocol that a bunch of different people started implementing. And maybe Salesforce didn't implement it until, you know, like 10 years in or whatever. But new applications started building that way. And I think that we're going to have the same thing in the world of authorization. I think that Reback will be an important piece of this. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at the ABAC world, the attribute-based access control world, I think the OPA engine will be a big part of that. And so we're really in early innings of this. And this industry or this, this category can become really big, as big or bigger than the authentication category, if, and maybe if and only if, we actually end up with standards that kind of make the whole larger than the sum of its parts. It's one of the things that I learned really early on in my career, like Microsoft had this thing called ODBC, like open database connectivity. And, you know, this now dates me like this goes back 20, 25 years, but Microsoft basically took a problem that was an N times M problem. 
how do these data applications like Excel and Access and Power Builder and you know, all these things that were made by Microsoft and others, how do you connect them to data sources? And every one of these apps had to go build 10 connectors. And it was what we call an N times M problem. So you had to kind of build it like N times M times. And ODBC was basically kind of the standard that said, all the apps have to do is talk to ODBC and all the database vendors basically implement that standard. And, you know, that's how like TCP IP was born, you know, in the early days. Those are just super powerful things. And that's really what we want to do. You know, I think not just as a certo, but also as an industry, we want to take an N times N problem and make it an N plus N problem. And we think that that creates massive opportunities for everybody in that ecosystem. So I think this is fully fascinating space because it's very new in a way. People have some really fully graphs. When you're just starting a new application or new company at the beginning, that permissioning will be such a crazy complexity that I think what people all now know this year is authentication is really hard to implement, right? Right, Because it's user-facing, things can, if it go wrong, can be really devastating. And all the detail is actually hard to implement. Yet developers can just quickly whip together a single database table that just checks if it's actually there or not, a Boolean, and you're kind of hack away through. So I'm assuming the biggest enemy of this space is tend to be like, you just want to build your own. Exactly. Like, engineers just do their own thing quickly. I can get by and only until certain points. Right? Yeah. I just wonder how do you found the right way, maybe the type of customers or even the right message to tell them like, okay, you can always do something quick, but this is what you're really going to be going out into and really able to grasp the complexity and feel the problem for them to know, okay, this is actually something we should really look at a sort of earlier. It's a fascinating question. I wrote a piece recently called Design Access Control Right In From The Start or Spend Years Regretting It Later or something like that, right? So you kind of have to take a position on this. But um, the truth of the matter is, when we first started doing our discovery for this, we talked to CTOs who were like, yeah, I'm seed stage right now. I don't really see that like I need this. You know, I, this seems like an easy problem. And we just kind of didn't really have those conversations, didn't pursue them, realized that they weren't our market. And, you know, the people who really were worth talking to were the people who said, uh, yeah, I'm on my second iteration of this and I can see that I'm already going to be on my third. And so those people were more incented to think of this as a hard problem. And sometimes it's just like you got to talk to them in their language. So more recently, we've been kind of digging into application security and the OWASP model. And uh, it turns out that broken access control is the number one source of application security issues. And so like the Z attack proxy Zap is the, the tool from the OWASP Foundation. It tries to find these broken access control issues. And so trying to find different audiences that care about this problem, I think is really important. Like, so talking to Edith from LaunchDarkly, she used to say, hey, very beginning, I had two problems. I had to convince people that they wanted future flags. And I also wanted to convince them, I needed to convince them that they didn't want to build it on their own. And most people said, hey, how hard could this be? It's a future flag. And I had to kind of convince them that there's actually more complexity than they thought. And why would they spend their time and effort on that when there's a commercial solution? She said, I actually have to invent the term feature flags. You know, there was all sorts of different terms at the time, gates and all sorts of other things. And, you know, we had to go write a lot of content and do a lot of education. 
And so I think there's no shortcuts here, right? Like, I think you have to realize that you're in it for the long haul and you have to also be lucky enough to be at an inflection point. You know, I think SOC 2 is a good example of something that five years ago, you know, like you said, oh, that's like for big companies that are in regulated industries. And somehow in the last two or three years, there's just been this acceleration of like, you know, how many companies feel like they need to be SOC 2 compliant. And it's like this standard, you know, all of a sudden this magic world word SOC 2 or ISO 27001 or all these things that used to be relevant to only like, you know, kind of larger players are now relevant to a much wider swath of people. So it's another, it's a very interesting evolution. And there's no doubt in my mind that we'll get there with authorization, that basically as people start realizing that they're patterns here and we have words around them like custom roles, words like decision logs and audit trails for decision logs, people will start recognizing these as requirements and realize that they have to have a strategy for them. Awesome. We are actually very proud backers of a SOC 2 company called Drata. So we very much appreciate the wave that's been pushing everybody towards becoming compliant earlier and earlier. I wanted to ask about timing for launch because it's always a hard question around knowing when the product or when you have enough early kind of tested beta users to then launch, like what were kind of the key things in your mind you wanted to have in order before you did your launch? And what were all the things that were included in that? Yeah, so we basically, we kind of thought about it as progressive disclosure. So in June of last year, you know, our objective mostly was to just kind of tell the world that we were here and what problem we were kind of working on and like open the doors to a set of basically early partners that could help us really kind of think through the problems and build the right product. And then in February, in March, we wanted to kind of go one step further, which was a public beta. And we really wanted to test whether we could go build a kind of a self-serve motion around our bits. And it's been like really interesting to just watch like session after session, like we have a recording tool, you know, for all these user sessions and you're just like, oh my God, they're getting stuck over here. And I wish I could just like pick up the phone and tell them what to do, but it's super humbling. And you basically get a lot of great feedback on how to make your product uh, better and better and better from that perspective. And so we felt like we really needed to get that, you know, kind of like that real data. And for us, the real launch is going to be when we GA, and we're hoping to do that later this year. And a lot of that is about having something that kind of pulls all these pieces together. That is simple enough for people to kind of, when they land, they need to get a moment of spark within the first couple of minutes. Tim's been really great at telling us from early days, he's like, yeah, spark's not there yet. Spark's not there yet. And it's great to have, you know, people that can, you know, kind of give you that feedback, but it's also great to have kind of a larger volume and see which users are persistent and what do they do and what do they get attracted to. And at the same time, you also need kind of that operational maturity. So we're going through our own SOC 2 type 2, and we're going through our own, all the GDPR stuff and and everything that you need to really kind of run something enterprise grade, because that's really kind of our, what we're advertising. So that is what we're really looking forward to this year. Yeah. So as you're going through this journey, I know this is definitely a very fun sort of category to jump into. There's so much technical discussions, right? So many things, so many thoughts, so many debates. It's one of those really interesting space. 
I know it's the early days, but what is the biggest lessons you learned you know, since you started? What are the hardest things you had to really learn and finally had to crack and figure out to really able to make the progress? And maybe also the flip side, give maybe some advice for new founders, right? Trying to jump into this sort of technical space. May not be permissioning, but lots of technical engineers want to jump into like a new category, have a new wave of doing something. Just any general advice for them will be helpful too. Yeah, I mean, I would say one thing, you know, in general about new category that jumps out to me is new categories are super hard and you don't actually want to be in a new category. What you want to do is you want to actually help make it better or simpler to do something that's really hard to do in maybe a subcategory of an existing category. And so one of the things that we moved away from, we used to say, hey, new category software and all that stuff. And it's almost like kind of rite of passage or, you know, it seems like it's cooler or whatever it is. But what you really want to do is figure out how you relate to something that they already know. So for us, it's the identity and access management category, right? So that's dominated by identity today. You know, access management is a tiny little piece of it, and we're trying to go extend that. So you have to kind of know how to position yourself in relation to things that they already know about. And application security is another one, right? Today, that's dominated by vendors that help you find problems, like that help you test your software, either you know static analysis, kind of like packages that are vulnerable, or maybe runtime intrusion detection and things like that. They'll try to help you kind of find problems, but they're not really vendors in that space that help you solve them. So finding a way to kind of go relate to an existing set of users and buyers is, I think, really, really important. And you just keep iterating, right? I don't know that we found the magic formula yet. We find people who are really interested in what we're doing, but there's still a lot of experimentation. You can't like be shy about doing that, right? So just because you happen to have something that seems to work, you know, there may be other formulations, other messages, other positioning that could be a lot more effective. I would say you got to stay humble there. And that's definitely been a challenge that I think has been a lot harder than what we initially thought. And then from a technical perspective, we also need to you know, make sure that we're not so dogmatic about a particular solution or a set of problems. You got to allow the market and the customer to tell you what's important to them. And so early on, for example, we very, very early on, we said, okay, we're going to go build an OPA thing and we're going to build an open source authorizer. And then quickly, you know, when we talked to people, they said, well, actually, we kind of want like the control plane thing. <laughs> we want you to run a hosted authorizer for us to make it easy for us. And yeah, and you know, when we get into production, we'll use your open source authorizer. And so that kind of like changed our, you know, our priorities. And likewise, with originally we thought that we wanted to get people to build OPA policies. And at some point we realized people don't really want to get it deep into the syntax. They kind of want a set of patterns that work. And most of the policies that our customers use are in some ways derived from our hello world policies, our various patterns that we've created. So, you know, knowing that meant that we need to not expose all of that deep complexity to them. You know, we really need to be able to have them be able to kind of get to it, like if they need to, but if they don't really care about it, not have to, to learn about it and worry about it so early on in the process. So plenty of learnings, both on the business go-to-market side, as well as the technical side. I love it. That's an awesome place to end. Thank you so much for doing this with us. It was great. Thanks so much. Glad to be here.